We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode four of Lion Legacy. And I'm going to start off with a special question for you, Ross. Yes, sir. Give me your favorite Penn State building. Oh, well, I'm going to give you off the top of my head. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you my favorite classroom building and my favorite non-classroom building. Did you go to classes? I did. I'm pretty sure I made it to all of them. I think. (laughs) Yes, I did. Uh, Favorite classroom building. When we were there, I really enjoyed the Thomas building. You know, I know it was mostly just a lecture hall, but when we were there, it was fairly new. It, It was a little bit more pristine than some of the, you know, the forum uh, as t- to compare it to uh, i enjoyed the thomas building a little nicer it was always a good spot and otherwise i would say the hub i mean the hub was just a nice nice building to be in it was you knew people were going to be there it was very inviting it was open it was just a lot of energy to it i and love, the hub. I love the hub as well um i would also say i'm going to go with the forum building as my favorite no i'm no. kidding no I'm kidding. i don't think anyone would say that right <laughs> Uh, we did spend a lot of time in in the forum building, and when you said the Thomas Building, I immediately thought, "What do students today think about the Thomas Building? Do they look at that as an older building?" Probably. <laughs> feeling old, feeling old. Um, I'd have to go. I'm going to go with like a legacy building, and I'm going to say Rec Hall. I had Ooh. a lot of classes, Kines classes in Rec Hall. I love just that kind of older gymnasium vibe that it had the bleachers it wasn't comfortable by any means but when you went to volleyball games you were right on top of of the game and you could feel the intensity i actually wish they played basketball there i think it would be it would you know would definitely be hard for the opponents almost like cameron indoor with duke when you're on top of the athletes and the student athletes but yeah, I think hopefully Rec Hall never goes away because it is definitely one of my favorites. And I'm going to date ourselves a little bit here. That's where Thon was held when we were students. That's true. Yeah. Very, very true. Times have changed, my friend. Yeah. Excellent. Well, the reason why Jared brings up architecture specific to Penn State is because our guest today is a gentleman named Jim Alexander, who is a senior principal at a longstanding architecture firm in Boston. Penn State grad, and he tells us a little bit about the architectural industry, the profession, some of his favorite projects he's worked on. Again, another topic like many others that we really didn't know too much about. And Jim did a nice job of building it up for us, pun intended. All right, let's welcome Jim Alexander, Penn State graduating class of 1965, architecture major, and senior principal of Feingold Alexander Architects in Boston, Massachusetts. And yes, the Alexander in the company's name does in fact belong to him. You know, we were were looking over the list of projects that you've worked on and wow, it's it's an impressive list, my friend, including a number of historical preservation projects, Harvard University, Old City Hall in Boston, and the Ellis Island National Monument and Museum of Immigration as well. 
You've also been recognized by numerous organizations and in 2019 was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Massachusetts Historical Commission. Jim, a true honor to have you on with us. Thanks for taking the time today. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's it's always sort of fun to think about the past and what's happened and where you're headed in the future. So this is great. Jim, really excited to have you on here with us. Jared mentioned a particular specialty in historical preservation projects. Uh, When we hear someone's in architecture, we tend to think um, immediately about the most modern and technologically advanced buildings. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the legacy side of the architecture world and how these projects are different from creating something entirely new. You know, one of the, the big differences is, and people used to always kid me when we when I got out of school and I started developing this interest in preservation, they used to say, well, real architects do new buildings. They don't do old buildings. And that was something very, it was really uh, struck at the heart of kind of this issue for a lot of us who, who ended up in the field. But when you think about it, working with an existing building and trying to make it meet modern standards and codes but as well as serving modern functions and still making it feel relevant, it's a pretty big challenge. Picking a piece of paper and building a building in a green field or an empty site, okay, that's a challenge too, and to do it really well. But I think really to, to make something special out of an existing building is also is equally a challenge. So that's one of those misconceptions I think that people have. And one of the things that's actually been important for preservation and and reuse of buildings now, and I don't want to just stick with historic because I think we're talking about a building stock, some of which are not historic, but they're useful. They have a great life and a great possibility for new use. So that's the trick is to unlocking that key to what what makes them relevant and, and reusable. So, I mean, that's sort of what... I think really interested in me in that, although it's at Penn State, of course, we had lots of chance to work with new buildings and design new buildings and cut our teeth on a very flexible program that gave us a great opportunity. And we were surrounded by a wonderful historic setting. I mean, the mall and, the, and College Avenue and some of the buildings at school are really significant. So you had the yin and the yang of, of being an, of your architectural study. Uh, while at while at Penn State, that was a that was a big plus for me. So we'll definitely so, get into the Penn State part as well a little bit later in the show. But I want to keep on touching on the historical aspect. Sure. Ellis Island project has yeah. a lot of relevance to to me. My grandparents came through Ellis Island. Would love to hear a little bit more about what you specifically did. Well, you know, Ellis Island had been abandoned, really. Here you had this site where 12 million immigrants came through. And when we got there, it was a ruin. There were trees growing out of the roof. The building was collapsing inside. You know, it was in horrible condition. And yet, I'll never forget the first boat ride, because you have to obviously go there by boat, getting off the boat, stepping onto the land and walking in it was like being in an abandoned cathedral or something because you've had this feeling of the people who had gone through, who had passed through that portal, and here it was falling apart. And much of it had been changed, too. It's interesting if your parents came through. When, do you know when, or your grandparents, when they came through? you know what year by any chance? I think this has to be the late, late 30s, early 40s. Ah, okay. Because then what they would have seen in the building would have been pretty much 
the way we restored it. it. It was built in 1900. It was the first building ever built with architectural competition by the U.S. government. Because let's face it, there'd never been an immigration center before. I mean, this was a huge thing with millions of people coming and thousands every day getting off the boat and having to be processed in a building. Well, that never happened before. I mean, there had been people, if you had money, you could buy passage and go straight into, say, Manhattan or even to, to Boston or other places. But, but most people were not able to do that. So if you really were not wealthy enough to do that, you went to Ellis Island, and that was your only choice. So the building was in, in horrible condition, but it also was getting a lot of attention. Lee Iacocca, of course, at that time was head of Chrysler. He took this on because his parents came through. The National Park Service was involved. The federal government put money in through that angle. So we had a lot of people watching over us, I'll tell you. And in order to tell the story, uh, one of the big parts of the story, if you looked at the building now, there's a, a glass canopy out in front, which is a recreation in a modern way of something that had been there in 1900. It had been destroyed and taken away, but we wanted to put it back. But part of putting something back like that is not to put it back in the way it was necessarily, but as I said, to make it relevant and useful. So we reinterpreted that in a very contemporary way. And the other thing we did, which was a big part of the story, when people were getting a medical exam, they had to walk up a flight of stairs. And if you were heavy breathing, you couldn't see, you stumbled, you were taken aside, given another check, and possibly sent home if you had glaucoma or certain diseases. So that stair was also destroyed. And people wanted to put back a hologram or something else. But we really said, no, that was part of the experience of the building for those millions of people who went through. They all had to climb that stair. But again, there were no drawings of it. So we did an interpretation of that so that the, the feeling that the spirit of the place was not lost, but the actual detail was quite different. Anyway, it was a pretty fascinating history to, to, to read about and then to, to actually get into the technical parts of it. So it was pretty exciting to have a combination of old techniques and yet bring new spirit to the place. That, that's fantastic. I had a chance to, to visit in the late 90s. I grew up in Queens, and it's just nice to, to meet the person who actually worked on it. So fantastic, and congratulations. <laughs> that's a huge project of importance as well. And uh, Jim, as a follow-up question there, you know, was there a general consensus among, I guess, your team and, and others that had input on the vision as to what they wanted that that project to look like? Or would you feel like there was a lot of differing ideas and opinions along the way? There were differing opinions. I mentioned one about not putting sure. back something which was missing. Yeah. But, th but there were others because, you know, we had a building which attracts maybe two million people a year. So what are they going to see? You know, they have to see exhibits. They have to be able to move through the building. And of course, so there weren't any real, there was elevators, the old elevator that was broken down. But to move crowds through a museum, we had to put an escalator in one area. So there were debates. Is this, are you really going to put an escalator in this building, which is so precious and historic? 
So we ended up finding a, a light well that nobody ever went into. It was just an empty space. So we were able to add the escalators and a big skylight to make a rather exciting space out of something which had just been an old, ugly light well. So there were debates on that. But one of the things about it, we had to do what's called a historic structures report, which detailed the building of its entire history, what materials were in it, how they were put together, there's a wonderful tile ceiling, which you probably saw, Jared, Guastavino tile ceiling in the main room. So all of those things had to be restored. Uh, the ceiling had to, every one of the tiles, there are like 17,000 tiles. Each one had to be touched with a hammer to make sure that it wasn't going to drop after all these years. There were things like that that were given, and then there were things where we had freedom, and there's where the interpretation went back and forth. Lee Iacocca had strong ideas. The Park Service had ideas. Uh, there was no shortage of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing about being, being the architect is you do have a certain cachet. You know, sometimes you get to the point, well, is it going to be red or blue? Well, the architect often gets to decide at that point, unless the client is there with all the money, and the, <laughs> which also happens. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, and so pivoting a little bit to uh, your the architecture as an industry and a profession, I'm sure it's certainly a delicate balance between the art and the science. In your opinion, what makes a successful architect? Whoa. As I mentioned, you have to be willing to make decisions to lead a team because you're dealing with regulations, you're dealing with client needs, and you're dealing with the rest of a team. And you have engineering, we haven't even thought about it. You've got acoustics, you have structure, you have all the things that go into success. So you quickly learn as an architect, even in school, that you're going to have to be responsible and listen to an awful lot of voices in order to be successful. So listening and being able to compromise sometimes is really what it's all about. I mean, we all have strong design ideas, but sometimes forces don't work in that direction. The structure can't be done that way or certain other things happen. So you have to find a way to continue so that you can build something. I think that one of the strongest things that I think that is important for architects is to have the, the desire to actually build something. And that teaches you compromise and it teaches you how to do workarounds so that you can achieve that. I know we wanted to touch on kind of new architecture, so pivoting a little bit in that direction. Sure. Someone obviously comes to you with a need, a building need. Can you give us a little bit of that high level walk through of the architectural process and then you mentioned it a little bit in your previous answer but how do you then work with engineers and then the on-site construction well and that's where it becomes a really personal sort of adventure <laughs> you know between the client and the program that they're trying to achieve and your vision for what it can be because i think if you don't start with a vision or get to that fairly quickly then it's very hard. You can't coordinate all the other parts without a vision. So that design vision, which comes from working with your client, working with his budget, working with his program, working with their needs, really begins to put that, that concept, the thing that we always think of as a napkin sketch, 
or now it's a you know an iPad sketch or whatever, and maybe it's just a very simple diagram, but it's something that you can rally around and other people can rally around when when the going gets tough and the structural engineer gets unhappy or the price starts going or whatever. Um, but then you can come back to that concept and say, well, isn't this really what we wanted to do? Isn't this what you wanted to do? How do we get there? Okay, let's make a few adjustments. But if we want to build, then that's what we that's what we have to do. Um, I think one of the the challenges these days is where everybody is, you know, we're very into technology, which is great, and the means of producing stuff. But you know, you really don't want to lose that personal sort of hands-on person-to-person connection, which really does produce, I think, great architecture, whether it's a brand new building and or a historic building. And and then how early on does engineering come in, right? Because I can imagine you can dream and have a vision of something, but at the same time, it needs right. to be viable. So we try to bring engineers in at what we call the schematic stage. This is just after the concept. Say you do a sketch, that's the concept. Then you bring some engineers in, you start doing a little more hard line and you get to design development. You bring more engineering in and it just builds. Then we finally get to construction documents, which is just before you go out and to build it and get pricing. And then finally you do construction. And architects still do construction administration. So really you have the nice thing being an architect, you get to go all the way from that little sketch to seeing it built and your hands are on it the whole time. And that's why we feel it's important to bring in those engineers. So we all are a team from the beginning and we have all our consultants have make sure that they have their people on the building in the beginning on the project going straight through in the field as well. So Jim, you touched upon the technology a moment ago, and just to build upon that a little bit, I'm sure it's changed a lot since your earlier days <laughs> as an architect. Boy, I'll say. <laughs> right. So I'm just like, at a high level, how have you seen that evolution? I'm sure on the one hand, right, just like any technology, like your iPhone, right? It's a blessing when it's doing great things, but when it's not working, yeah. I'm sure you're cursing it. So just yeah. to walk us through a little bit how you know, you've know you used that technological evolution over the years. Yeah, it's it's funny because there's a certain thread of it that we've always used in our firm, which had to do with always having a 3D image of our projects before our clients very early on. In the beginning, of course, we all did watercolor classes and we did watercolor sketches by hand <laughs> for the clients. And then, they became, then it became more professional. And of course, as time went on, it really just evolved so that the tools of SketchUp and AutoCAD first, which was one tool and had things like doing sketches and things, but, but they were very crude. So we've always found in the firm that even if we're doing a wireframe model in CAD, we'll often pull that off, give it to one of our good architects renderers who will do a watercolor over that. And you know what also I didn't mention much about, but this whole sustainability question has been a big issue, which one of the things that technology has really helped on is testing materials and knowing how you can achieve great energy efficiency from certain things. So that's something we we couldn't do without this electronic age, I don't think. 
Yeah, let's dig a little bit deeper because that was one of the things that we wanted to touch oh. on is environmental sustainability and its its role right. in architecture. And you hear a lot about LEED certified, if I'm if I'm pronouncing that correctly, certified right. buildings. Oh. And I think common people like myself think about, okay, smart lighting and water efficiency, but can you really go into a little bit more detail around what this means and how you're bringing it into your designs today? We're doing a public library for Amherst, Massachusetts now, we, and we're doing an addition to it. And the original building is a 1928 building, so it doesn't have a lot of insulation and blah, blah, blah. But we're adding to this building, we're adding about half again another, a new addition. So in order to test this, we went through something called energy usage of, of calculation, which calculates the amount of energy the existing building is using and how much it's going to use when we finish. And we found out we were cutting it in half just by normal standards. But then we said, well, how can we do better than that? One of the things we found we could do is do solar voltaics on the roof for not a huge amount of money. So solar panels was an easy thing to do on the new addition, not the historic original. But So that was a big help. We looked at things like added levels, of course, of insulation and a lot of things like that. So we were able to really reduce this usage of energy on a square foot basis to something like two-thirds of what it would be. In, in the, we're adding this huge new addition, but we're still using less energy for the whole project than the existing building uses now. So wow. <laughs> I think you're right. The lead, we're actually going beyond lead now with what we're trying to do because carbon neutrality is another big issue and it's very hard to get to. So in this same library, we were analyzing the carbon usage and the carbon inherent in the building. And we decided to go with a wood structure because a wood structure, of course, is very carbon neutral. Um, and of course, one of the things we found, of course, it is a more expensive system, but the owners said it was worth it because they're trying to get to zero net energy in their town. So this all goes into that equation. So it's beginning to really catch on, which big is one push. of the, oh, yeah, big push. Now, when you look across your entire career, is there one project that really stands out as, as being the top one, the favorite? And I imagine there's probably <laughs> many of them, but if you could just uh, choose one. Sure. Who's your favorite child, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Ellis Island because uh, is, is certainly one. There's no doubt about that because of its social significance. It's when it's not just an architectural project, but it's such a, a huge project. I mean, that makes a big difference. We also did recently, we've worked on a number of concert halls, and, and that's always exciting. You know, the Boston Opera House we did with, a, with in conjunction with another architect, and we, that was a, a great project. And we even, and one, one theater that we did in Boston called the Wang Center, we actually had to take the floor of the theater because it was not handicapped accessible at all. This is a 4,000 seat theater, and we re-raked the whole back half of the floor inside this historic theater. So we tore all the seating out, tore all the floors out, and took half the seats and to totally changed the floor slope. So it was another you know, exciting kind of project. So, so they're all your favorite projects at the end yeah, of the day. Yeah, it's part <laughs> of it, yes. Well, you know, you learn so much from each one you do. And we just did a project, I'd never done this before, but there was a church in, in, in part of Boston, which is 
had been abandoned for about 10 years. A client wanted to buy it and turn it into housing. Well, there was no way to get the housing to work. So we actually tore the roof off of the church and dropped a new steel and glass box inside of the old stone walls. So you have four stories of stone with tall arched windows, a classical 1880s church with a glass box on top. So that was that was pretty fun. You know, you just reminded me of something and I'm I'm curious on your input on this. Notre Dame in Paris. Oh, yeah. I imagine yeah. when that was uh, unfortunately on fire, you probably had an entirely different perspective from a from an architectural yeah. aspect. Yeah, because that's one of the things that you do learn is the history of architecture. And it's really fairly, you know, it's a wonderful history. And Notre Dame being one of the pinnacles of that, to see it destroyed. But, you know, something else that people didn't know, of course, the original sort of cupola in the middle of Notre Dame, the big spire, was added way after it was built. It was added in the 1880s. So there's this kind of history you can get into because buildings have changed, so especially a building like that over time. But it sort of brings tears to your eyes when you see something like that burning. And then you see all the crazy ideas that people had about restoring it, putting a, a garden on the roof or, I mean, it's just wild, crazy stuff. You think, well, maybe, but not at Notre Dame. <laughs> no. You're probably rolling your eyes at most of those ideas. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a little hard to take. <laughs> All right, Jim. And th thanks for your stories on some of your favorite projects there. We always love hearing, uh, you know, picking your brain on, on what were your favorites over the years. And so now to build upon that, if you had to pick a dream project to work on, what would that be? A dream project. You know, I was just recently thinking about a project that would be wonderful to be able to do. I've been looking at how Boston has been growing and how a lot of cities grow and how what's the difference between that and some of the older parts of cities that we all love, you know, uh, small towns, big towns, parts of New York, the Upper East Side, parts of Boston. Part. Well, what's missing uh, from the scale of things that we're doing now? And isn't there some way to you know, get back to some planning of urban design that, that involves both architecture and urban planning that, that not recreating the historic fabric, but coming up with some scaling devices that even if you've got a town of a whole group of new high rises, there's a dialogue between the buildings or there's a streetscape that really pulls these things together. And it would be great to have kind of a blank slate to be able to design something that had that kind of uh, thing going for it. I was thinking recently, there's a lot of talk about a linear city, which has a big promenade on the top. Think of it as a big extruded triangular building. And on the top, you have a big walkway, like a public street, and you have housing down the side, and you have offices below, you have retail on the ground level. And you have a, this sort of incremental thing that kind of kind of grows, but has its own character, which would be something interesting to try anyway. But uh, very interesting, very yeah. interesting. Now, one of the things we all three have in common are certainly the Penn State connection. Ah, yes. But 
when you go back to campus nowadays, is there a Penn State building that is your favorite from an architectural perspective? Well, I'm really very fond of the the new architecture building. I mean, I have been back several times. I've been there, and I think it it has a lot going for it. It is sort of a, I guess we use the word sometimes as a, a sort of a Queen Anne front and a Mary Anne behind. But you know, it, it has two very distinctive aspects to it. The side facing, you know, the water tower and the woods is the copper, and it's very, uh, it's, it's very nice. It fits very nicely. The other side fits in with its more formal, you know, colonial revival neighbors on the other side, where it's all brick and not nearly quite as interesting. But um, I think I really think it's it's a good building because it does respond to its two different aspects of it and inside spatially i think it's it's really quite exciting you know this i think is the best way so i really like i like the building a lot and it's nice to see there's some new buildings with some character the business school i think robert stern designed so uh, one of the the funny things that i did with a couple of my classmates in our last year at school. It's a wonder we graduated. We had a campaign called Penn State is an Architectural Disaster. (laughs) (laughs) In 1965, we had petitions going. We had... I had a lot of things happening, and we had letters were going to Harrisburg because the the architects for the campus were just being picked by bureaucrats, basically. From the GSA in Harrisburg, who had a lot of them had they had no architectural training or anything. So anyway, at that time they were also going to tear down the wonderful historic armory building, which was right on the mall. So you know it got us whipped up into shape, and the three of us started this thing, and we ended up you know I, maybe making some impact. I don't know, but, but certainly the quality changed a couple of years later. They had Robert Venturi do the the Alumni Center behind the Nittany Lion Inn, for example. So, you know, I don't know. That was quite a, an interesting time to be a, a lot of people were protesting the, the war in Vietnam and all kinds of other things, but we were protesting the architecture at Penn State. That's, <laughs> that is funny. But I also do find it fitting that the architect chooses the architecture building at Penn State, it is his favorite. So very, yeah. very, very fitting on that one as well. Hey, a little, little plug for the architecture school. Exactly. Right. And actually, it's also one of the most sustainable buildings on campus. That was a big part of their program. So what the heck? We would expect nothing less, of course. <laughs> exactly. So now we're going to put you into the Lions Den, which, as uh, you can imagine, is a segment dedicated to your time at Penn State. Oh, it's great. Great. So, Jim, you've told us all about your impressive career. How would Penn State prepare you for that career that you've had there? Well, one of the things I, I guess I would say is that the Penn State has had a lot of personality for people who were open to design. You know, at that time, also, the, the, the class was very small. And the nice thing, too, is that the professors in architecture were often local architects who practiced in, say, college. A lot of them built houses and not a lot more. But they also knew how to build and how to get clients satisfied and how to put it together. And they communicated that as part of no matter how wild of a design or what you were doing, 
they encouraged you, they talked to you about it on an individual basis. And that seemed to transcend a lot of different things. Because remember, the architecture program was is very intense for five years. I mean, we had two years of architectural history on top of acoustic design, the mechanical design, engineering structures, all of these other things. And we had art courses. I mean, we had actually figure drawing and real art courses. And we're taking English and we're taking, you know, all the other stuff. Sounds like the, the complete experience there, which is really cool. It was. It was for me, yes. So this one's a tough one, and this is the toughest question of oh. them all. But if you've got to pick one, and this time you've got to pick one, Jim, one favorite Penn State memory, would, <laughs> what would it be? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. Strangely enough, having said all of these other things, and I should say my father was a Penn Stater too, and my aunt, so you know, even, though we I, go. even though I may have wanted to go somewhere else, my father said, well, you can go anywhere you want as long as you go to Penn State. That's right. So that's, you know, I think the first time I went to a football game was actually one of the wildest experiences of all. I mean, just being there with so you know, this huge crowd of people not being experienced, you hold the whole tailgating and all of that stuff, because I came from a Maryland, town in Maryland, it's really small. But I thought the excitement of hearing the blue, the, band, the blue band and all of that stuff and having all those rum and cokes in the stand with all of my close <laughs> friends. I mean, I, that was pretty, yeah. And the first game was one of those perfect days in the fall at the State College and every, we won. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? But that somehow was a really big, made a big impression on me, not, not alone all the fraternities and parties and then all the other stuff that went on. But that was also what made Penn State, I think, so great, is that you had all of those things, great parties, the great sports, opportunities to do anything you wanted. It was all there. It was all there. I mean, it is all there, <laughs> which is the nice thing about schools this size, actually. If you could visit with the 18-year-old version of Jim, a freshman at Penn State, what advice would you give him? Oh, I, I think the, the the best advice is just to is to really do it all, to go for everything, and also to get take advantage of everything that's there, you know, of campus life. I was amazed too that it wasn't always just the fraternities. I mean, there were other things, even the dorm complexes. I was in West Halls. Well, there was a lot going on. It was fun. And you really needed to get, even though we had design studios for four hours, three days a week. So you, your time was difficult. But you need to get out from under that because real life is, is still going on. So I think take advantage of it all and do things there that you wouldn't, that are beyond your normal course load. Do other things, other courses that you wouldn't take. Great advice there. Now, I know you're in Boston and you may not get back to Penn State very often, but how do you feel connected to the university these days? Well, it's interesting because I have a daughter who went to Penn State. I have a granddaughter who went to Penn State and just, wow. gra just graduated last Excellent. spring. Yeah. Congratulations. Very, very cool. So there's a whole family, you know. So when we actually, we had a family reunion in Pennsylvania you know, I don't know, a couple of years ago. So we all were with the trough, trough, trough trees. What is the resort thing? Anyway, I had the a great trees, time. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
And so it was great. Everybody wanted to go back to the creamery, you know, the usual thing. So going to the architectural school was great. And so I decided to do a mentoring program with somebody right now. I'm actually mentoring a kid who's in his last year. Uh, you know, there are chances to get back uh, occasionally, uh, especially with all these family ties. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, this has been a, an amazing 35 minutes. Thank you for spending the time with us. Certainly an impressive list of achievements, accomplishments, and talk about leaving your, your mark on history, on the future as well, with everything that you've done from a design and architectural perspective. So thanks again. And we always end on one thing. We are Penn State. <laughs> Lion Legacy is a Baruder production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.